watchers in the fourth dimension. Oh, you did have a party last night, didn't you, sir? <laughs> they will be impregnated with the Dalek factor. Gold! I am into gold! Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. I'm Alan. And I'm Riley. And this episode, as you probably heard, friend of the podcast Alan Seiler is joining us as we head back into the Troughton era to discuss the recently released animation for Evil of the Daleks. For those of you who don't know Alan, he is one of the co-hosts of Earth Station Trek and also of Modern Musicology and an increasingly prolific author. This is his third time on the show, I think. Maybe yeah. fourth. Third or fourth, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So welcome back, Alan. We're delighted to have you for this. We're going to try and use these bonus episodes to try and get a few more of our friends in the podcast sphere onto the show. Since this is a bonus episode, once again, we won't be doing the mail. We won't be doing a short summary. We're just going to jump straight into behind the scenes. Then we'll discuss the story and then we'll wrap it up and rate the story. Giving a really quick recap on the history of this one. The Evil of the Daleks was originally transmitted in the UK between May and July 1967 as part of the show's fourth season. It has the honour of being the first full Doctor Who serial to ever be repeated, which happened in the summer of 1968, immediately after season five wrapped up. And the master transmission tapes were erased by the BBC almost immediately after that repeat. The serial was sold abroad pretty extensively. It's known to have been broadcast in Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore, and New Zealand. And the latter of those marked the final time that the story was transmitted in 1970. As historians of the show, as well as regular listeners of our podcast will know, the BBC did not really archive television drama prior to 1978. With that in mind, when Australia returned their Prince of the Evil of the Daleks in June 1975, the Prince was soon marked for destruction, which probably happened between April and November 1976. When the BBC opened up their TV archive in 1978, no episodes of the Evil of the Daleks were available for inclusion. Or so they thought. Fast forward a little to the summer of 1983. A BBC transmission print of episode 2 of The Evil of the Daleks came up for sale at a specialist car boot sale in Buckinghamshire. It was bought by an independent film collector who, thankfully, did the right thing and returned it to the BBC in May 1987. It turned out that the print was one of the ones that had been produced for use by overseas television networks. It's not known how the print found its way to that car boot sale. The most logical explanation is that it was one of the Australian returns and that someone spirited it away before it could be destroyed. Disappointingly, there's no evidence that any of the other six episodes survived in the same way. Like the rest of Doctor Who's missing episodes, the remaining six episodes survive in audio format, thanks to the work of diligent fans who recorded the sound from their TVs in the 1960s. This has enabled several narrated audio releases of the story in the 1990s and 2000s, along with the animated version that we're about to discuss. The animation itself was commissioned, produced, and released this year, 2021, with work being conducted by the same production team that handled the animation of the Faceless Ones. I can already hear Don cheering at that. And this was directed by Anne-Marie Walsh. No experimental technology, no secondary team, just the tried and tested methodology that's worked so well for the other season four releases so far. And as far as I'm aware, there was only one major change to the story, which was the removal of the Beatles with paperback writer in episode one, as the BBC were unable to get the clearance to use it on this release. C'est la vie, unfortunately. 
So as I said, since this is a major animation project, with all seven episodes of the serial being animated, including the one that exists, we'll be going into a little bit greater detail than we previously did for The Web of Fear, and as I said, we will re-rate this story at the end. Before we really kick off by discussing the animation itself, I'm just curious, who watched the animated episode two, if anyone? Absolutely. Yes. Oh, I did. Same here. I've seen the original episode two many times, so I definitely stuck to the animation for this one. Ooh. I figured maybe someone would watch the actual existing one rather than the animation of episode two. I did pull it back up just for reference, because that scene where the Doctor and the Daleks have their first confrontation, I remember that scene so vividly from the original episode that I was kind of like, I pulled it back up to watch that bit, just as comparison to the way that they animated it, just to refresh my memory. I ended up watching both the original yep. and the animation because I wanted to compare. And did anyone watch the color version? No. God, no. no why? <laughs> Just I, checking. I, I did. Right. What a stupid I question is that? <laughs> I did it. Riley did. God I did. damn it, Riley. I watched it. And the reason why is because I was just so curious as to how they would do it with color. And I figured I'd seen so much of the second Doctor in black and white, both with the real episodes and in Reconstruction. And I said, what the hell? Let's watch it in color. Let's see what they got. And it was fine. I mean, to me, I think one of the issues that I had was with reconstructions, there's so much that you create in your imagination when you listen to it and you watch the stills. And it being in black and white, you know, helps with that. So I figured if I'm going to see everything, might as well be in color too. Let's just go and remove all that fantastical element of it. It's interesting that they do things with color, with lighting effects that translate really well in the full color version that the way I understand it is they create the color version and then grayscale it. So it's not being created in black and white. So I feel like there are times when there could be more contrast in the images in the black and white to make them a little more clear or distinct or stand out a bit more. You guys are making me feel like it's a downer. <laughs> oh, no, no. The only time I ever watch the color is when BBC America broadcasts it. Okay. Every other time, I only watch black and white. And Alan, to your point, I think the only one that was done the other way, where it was created in black and white and then put into color, was with the power of the Daleks. I remember that. Yeah, exactly. The ask for color came later on in the project. Right. Riley, I have to ask, would mm -hmm. you go and watch the other animations in color now? Or did this kind of satiate that desire to experience it once and now you're good? I'm taking that on a serial by serial basis. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fair. We'll see what you do when we do Galaxy 4 later in the year. All right. The obvious question, animation style. I think it was relatively unchanged from what we saw in The Faceless Ones. Obviously, when we did The Web of Fear a few weeks ago, most of us were pretty <laughs> unimpressed with that. Did it feel good to be coming back to this more traditional style? Yes. Yes. Hands down, yes. And I think they improved upon The Faceless Ones, to be perfectly honest. There were some lighting things that I found interesting. The dust motes that they just had everywhere. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. that was so good. That added so much to the atmosphere. Yeah, you I, could see that so in much. like the last two episodes where they were doing it like fog on yeah. Scaro. Mm -hmm. Yeah, worked really well. Yeah, it's so good. And there's this one scene where it's Victoria walking down the hallway. Yeah, I noticed that one. And just the way that the rays of light were coming in and mm. the desmos and oh, it was so beautiful. I was like, man, why can't we have this animation studio do all of the animations? Right. 
yeah, I mean, we'll see how uh, our friends at Big Finish Creative do with Galaxy 4. Hopefully it's a step up and closer to this. Absolutely. Yeah, I think they need to experiment less and really focus on making <laughs> just a better product. Because at least with these animations, I think they fit in pretty well when you're going from existing episodes and then you're watching an animated reconstruction. If they're done well, you kind of forget about that because they fit in with the style, which is why I don't want to watch the color ones, because to me, that's a sudden change if I'm watching them in order. And to go from something that looks kind of like the episode to this weird 3D experiment, just it didn't work for me in that case. Okay, well, let's talk about the animation in general, things it did well, the sets, the translation of the action, any memorable scenes that you were pretty excited to see play out. I can think of one that, Julie, I know you were really, really <laughs> interested in when we actually watched the recon, and I want to see if it lived up to your expectations now you've seen it with a bit of movement. Let's jump right in. Any particular highlights for anyone? Everything seemed like it was done as if you would be seeing it on television in 1966 or seven or whatever it is. There were only a couple of exceptions of like camera movement or camera angle that you wouldn't have got in the original production. And one of them is the first time you see Maxible's house. The camera yeah. kind of does a mm -hmm. sweeping pan around the house. Mm -hmm. And that was really nicely done. Mm -hmm. The first time you see Maxible's lab, there's uh, scenes in the last episode in the emperor's chamber that are kind of like shot from above that you wouldn't have seen before. And so it was nice touches, but they weren't overdone. I think it hit that balance nicely between doing some things they could only do with animation or that they could only do with live action today while still respecting the source material. And I'm okay with them taking those kind of liberties. I like that, you know, so they could have done more of that for me. Yep. There's a few scenes that I really enjoyed. <clears throat> I'm going to get to the one later. I'm trying to go a little <laughs> bit in order right now. We did get the wonderful scene between Jamie and the doctor when the doctor's like, don't knock anything over. Yes. <laughs> and then immediately knock something <laughs> over. And the look on Jamie's face was exactly what it needed to be <laughs> yeah. in the animation. And I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you for getting that right. So that was wonderful. We already touched upon the scene with Victoria because that was probably the highlight shot for me. And I know the one you're talking about is the one where they're climbing up the rope. And <laughs> I will say that they did probably a little bit different than they would have because based on other serials, they would have done a lot more um, <clears throat> angled shots uh, up the kilt. <laughs> but they didn't do it. They were a little bit more tasteful. It still looked like that Camille was looking up his kilt, though. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Camille was. Camille had the best view of the house. Absolutely. Hands down. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. You're welcome. <laughs> I didn't say it. Thank you. <laughs> so I overall enjoyed it. The one thing that I found missing was remember that excellent photo of Maxible that I found where he's like <laughs> coming out of this corridor and he's like chest out and just ready to go. I didn't quite get that shot in. But otherwise, I mean, things were well done. The action shots were good. I loved seeing the Daleks explode. That was really wonderfully yeah, done. Yeah, it was really well done. I had forgotten how susceptible they were to rope attacks in this serial. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed the finale. It looked mm -hmm. like oh my gosh. It, it, the animation 
because of like the sparks and I don't know how the sparks looked for all of you in the black and white, but the gold sparks splashing really close in front of the screen during the big fight, it gave that scene a lot more chaos and energy than honestly I would have expected it to be if it was the real thing that I was watching. That's how good I think they did with that action scene. That really impressed me. I really, I really sat back with that. And of course, everyone talks about the use of like the excellent use of dust. The Kimmel Jamie fight was good. And I see what Alan's talking about, how two dimensional it was fit how 1960s television directing would be. And it's directed almost like you're watching a stage play where there isn't much opportunity for them to you know rotate or turn around. It's all very flat and it worked and did what it needed to do. And it looked OK. I also appreciated the use of the traps. That was the thing I was so excited about this animation is that you don't get a real sense of how the traps would work. You know, that's one thing that I know me and Don really enjoyed the spooky mm -hmm. castle, the spooky house with the traps all around the very Scooby-Doo-esque sense of this serial. And it was good to actually see the traps in action instead of just the audio and then just a still of it. So those are the, th the highlights to me was seeing that type of action. If you set your story in a spooky house or castle, I'm automatically going to give it like two or three points. Extra. <laughs> <laughs> I know I said it when we originally covered this and Riley just talking about that. My question still stands. Why does Maxtable have a house full of traps? Have you seen that man? <laughs> if right. I had that money, I would totally have a house full of weird traps. Speaking of those scenes, one thing that really impressed me was the lighting in the dark tunnels of the yes. house. Yes. Mm. I thought that was done really, really well. I remember when we watched the, um, what, what was the last one? Sorry. Fear the from dance? the Deep. Yeah. No, Fear from the Deep. We were watching Fairy for the Deep, and I had all that commentary about how they treated Victoria. Victoria was much better done here. I know it was still at the beginning of her tenure, and so she was still not quite the stronger character that she was in Tomb of the Cybermen. But she wasn't like her shoulders weren't hunched, and she wasn't actively being portrayed as being like weak. And mm -hmm. I enjoyed yeah. that so much better. They did her dirty eventually. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I do want to focus in on episode two, and particularly, Alan, you seem like you're very familiar with the original. I watched both more or less back to back to compare and contrast, and I was impressed with how they went for something that was almost shot for shot to the original. Mm -hmm. I think it's good continuity. They've got the source material. But if they're animating everything, there's the temptation to reimagine in the way that they did for the Macro Terra, and they didn't do that. Right. And I thought that was interesting. I think... The one thing that it really points up is that no matter how good the animation ends up being, you still lose a little bit of the actor performance because the scene that I was talking about earlier where the doctor and the Dalek have their first confrontation and they're like, you're going to do what we say. And he's like, I will not be your slave is so riveting, mostly because of Troughton's performance is is just so strong in those scenes. And so it does come across a little bit more two-dimensionally in the animation. There's just certain things that you can't capture all the nuance. But for what we got, I think it was done really well. I think it was an accurate representation of what was seen on screen back in the 60s. Give it 20 years. They're going to redo all these with deep fake technology. It'll be like we never lost them. And we will <laughs> buy them again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. I look forward to buying the Reign of Terror for like the sixth time at that point. <laughs> and what's creepy is they'll use their likenesses, the deep fakes, to advertise selling these box sets. Mm -hmm. 
One thing that they did make a slight modification on that I really loved, and it's something really small, is the animation on the Dalek eye stalk. Yes! I'm glad you brought that up. Almost like a camera lens type effect. I thought that was so cool. It gives them a sense of expression that you don't always get from the Daleks. Exactly. One thing I don't think I really noticed the first time around is the black Dalek versus the white Dalek. And it just highlighted a few things where I was just like, maybe they shouldn't have gone with black and white on that. Because when they're yelling, it's the black Daleks, kill the black Daleks. I'm like, uh oh, this just got yeah, awkward. Real yeah, fast. that is a little bit awkward. <laughs> <laughs> but what are they going to do? They filmed it yeah. in black and white. Get the red white, Dalek. I- <laughs> it's like, um, okay. <laughs> the regular Daleks were, I think, blue and gray in actual color rather than being white. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, it's just one of those things where I was like, it's the one interesting thing about things being in black and white that it just turns out that it's like, huh, that's an interesting choice. Again, it wasn't that bad, especially because everything was about Daleks and things like that. It was just very interesting to me that it's like, okay, they're just calling each other different colors as opposed to like rank, which is something I would have expected more of out of the Daleks. Later in the show, we start getting the black Daleks referred to as the Supreme Dalek. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that means he comes with sour cream in addition. (laughs) (laughs) But guac is still extra, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Always. And I loved what the Daleks looked like when they were blown up and you saw the insides of them. I thought that was really well done. That looked a lot like what we will eventually see in the show, particularly in the in the 80s, where you get the exposed Daleks when their lids are blown off. Nice little flash forward there. Let's talk specifically about the set designs. So I think there were probably three, maybe four main sets. There's everything up to the house. Mm-hmm. Then I'd say you've got the lab and the corridors, and then you've got everything on Scaro. Did the set design here, particularly in the animation, work for everyone? Absolutely. I really like the prison doors on Scaro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know that is a weird <laughs> sentence, I know. But I like, oh, I really like the way they've got the angled lines and stuff. That's very cool. And if I recall from the photos, that's how they were actually represented on screen originally. And they've pretty faithfully reconstructed that. As I was watching this, I thought that was a really interesting design choice rather than to deliberately go back to what we saw in the first couple of Dalek serials in terms of Dalek aesthetic. I I like it when they're faithful to what was actually made in the first place. I mean, I liked this, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. One thing that helps with the set design from the beginning was, you know, you had the faceless ones, which was the same set at the airport. Yeah. How convenient. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it gave it some really great continuity between the two animations. Yep, absolutely. So I enjoyed that aspect of it. And we already talked about that sweeping shot of his house, but I love that sweeping shot of the house. Yeah, absolutely. It's phenomenal. And then in the set with the picture of Victoria's mother. Yes. Mm -hmm. Just mm, so well done. And it made me very happy. Anyway. Speaking of that scene, of that set specifically, I watched the animation twice. I watched it once last week, and then I watched the whole thing over the last couple of days to sort of like prepare for tonight. And there was a detail that I didn't pick up on the first time. I think everybody knows about in episode one, when Jamie and the doctor are going into the little warehouse thingy and you see the posters out on the street. And one (laughs) of them is uh, what's her name from Galaxy 4. But in that scene in Maxible's sitting room where Victoria's mother's picture is hung on the mantle, there's two either candlesticks or lamp stands or whatever they are. And they're weeping angels. 
What? Oh. I didn't see it the first time and the second time. For some Fantastic. reason, the second time, it just stood out at me. And I was like, oh, uh, my gosh, look at that. In the first couple of episodes, when we were still in contemporary London, I was looking for like a poster with the master like they did. Exactly. Mm-hmm in the faceless ones right and of course by the time we got to the victorian era i stopped looking for those kind of easter eggs exactly and that's where they hit it yeah <laughs> i was looking for that creepy guy from the faceless one i know so. you were <laughs> yes the airport creeper yes <laughs> were you disappointed at the lack of the airport creeper or possibly his victorian ancestor i really was yes <laughs> While we're going back to the first episode, I have a question. So the Beatles were used originally in that cafe scene. Mm -hmm. I was surprised to hear this go around. It was Hold Tight by Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mitch, Mick, and Titch. That's a popular song. That's been used in a Tarantino movie recently. Or not recently, probably like in the last 10 years. But that's a copyrighted song. I was surprised by that. I'm sure they got the clearance. Yeah, probably much less expensive than licensing a Beatles song. Well, that's yes. why well, yeah. exactly. I was just, but I was just surprised they would even bother to even pay anyone. I thought they would just use some sort of like, hey, come up with something that sounds sixties rock style and just make make it up for it. I don't claim to know the nuances of British copyright law, but my understanding is certain things are licensed for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. So the BBC's license for ah. most of the catalogue of the Beatles has expired, but they probably had that particular song by the band with the ridiculously long name because it names all of their band members licensed <laughs> from something else they've done relatively recently. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, I like the song. So Oh, it's a great song. I didn't think about all of those nuances, Riley. I was just like, oh, I like the song. This is great. So, Anthony, your theory would make sense because that's probably why the song Merry Xmas Everybody by Slade plays like almost every Christmas episode on New Who, like every yeah. other one. The BBC have just perennially licensed that song. Yeah. Since we're talking about music. Here we go. Oh, here it is. <laughs> Sit back. Our friend Dudley. Kids, do Our you remember laughter? Dudley. Do you remember when Dudley Simpson gave a crap? but what i want to say is that what i like about it is all of the set design all of these nuances with light angles and everything like that it works well with the music because you got your clarinets going you've got your flute things going and it just fits the mood fits the scene fits the victorian era specifically and it's just refreshing to hear non-synth again because we've just been synthed out in the 70s Just wait till you get to the 80s. That sounds like a compilation album. Send it down in the 70s. Call 1-800 to get your album. But yes, I did have to bring that up because one of the things with this animation has done is it's highlighted a few things for me. I will also say, how dare you be like, okay, we're going to go back to a previous serial. Okay, great. You pick the one where I was just getting over Jamie and you pick the episode where Jamie is highlighted as being gallant and brave and nice and wonderful. And I'm like, thank you. I was almost over it. And then you have to come and bring it back. I mean, I don't pick the animation release (laughs) schedule. I almost replaced Jamie with Benton and now I'm back to Jamie again. Thank you. Hey, we've just had Gallant Benton in the Demons, which we haven't released yet. That will go out the week after this. But, you know, we had nice Gallant Benton and his delightful friendship. with. Was he wearing a skirt? No, he was was not. not. Also, this kind of makes what we're about to watch and what we have watched even worse, because maybe I'm being a bit too hard on Pertwee, and then we have this just just so full of trout and goodness. 
and it makes me want to retroactively lower scores further from <laughs> oh wow <laughs> harsh harsh yeah uh. i can understand that patrick troughton is arguably one of the best actors to have ever played the doctor so it was always going to be a little eye-opening to go back and watch him after two seasons of part even as an animated character, he's still just so good. And one of the things that I liked seeing on screen, even though it was animated, was the interaction between Jamie and the Doctor, because this really solidifies their friendship. It's Jamie gets upset with the Doctor for good reason, because the Doctor used him. And he's upset about it. And he eventually is like, oh, I kind of finally see your plan and everything's okay. And that's like the turning point, I feel, in the Doctor and Jamie's relationship. And and just to be able to see it was a wonderful thing. And what's so great about that is that turning point, it's consistent from there on for both of them. Unlike what we have now, where it's like, I thought we were getting somewhere between Joe and the third doctor and Mind of Evil. And then it just seems to revert every other episode. It's very frustrating. But you're right with Jamie and Troughton. It's just... Like they had their conflict in this, their disagreement, they resolved it. And then moving forward, they've changed together. Well, I think what you've got to keep in mind here is this is the end of the season. So mm -hmm. after this, the production team of the time had time to go regroup, talk through how the relationship had changed and make it consistent as they ramped up production for season five. Whereas what we have seen in season eight has been over the course of the season where you've had different writers often writing under time constraints. So that level of consistency isn't there. And I'm going off of memory, but I think as we move into season nine, we will start to see a more consistent relationship between Joe and the Doctor. I'm hearing a lot of excuses, Anthony. <laughs> yeah, what I'm yeah. hearing right now. <laughs> I'm trying, guys. I'm trying to make this less difficult to go back to part we after this. Yeah, and I'm trying not to be a downer again. I enjoyed some of the more recent Pertwee things that we've done, but it's just being able to see it on screen just highlights again what beauty there was on screen in the Trouton era. Yeah, totally agreed. His relationship with all of his companions was such a, a warm and friendly and caring one, but especially with Jamie. And I would say that Troughton and Jamie and Zoe is, is one of the best yes. TARDIS teams ever. Oh, yeah. Hands down. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. Jamie is my favorite companion, not just because he is Jamie, but because of that relationship and how strong it is. Yeah, I agree. But then I did write the chapter on Jamie <laughs> for Alan's books. So there's that. <laughs> it was just also refreshing to see, sorry to be jumping forward so much. It was refreshing to see the doctor having joy on screen. And I'm talking about the human baby Daleks, <laughs> Jim Henson's Dalek babies. <laughs> I love that. really enjoyed that and seeing the action of it, even it was through animated, just really just made my heart smile compared to like what we've been going through. And like I said, I can criticize the third doctor fairly, I believe. I have actually a softer spot for him than I think than some of us do, but it was just such a breath of fresh air to see lighthearted happiness and just joy on screen from the doctor in that scene. And then going into the animation of the Daleks themselves, we've talked about how good it looks. That made what happens to some of these baby Daleks or human baby Daleks, as we'll call them, so much more heart wrenching because mm -hmm. before it's just, oh, well, I can't see anything. It just looks like a still picture of a Dalek in black and white. OK, whatever. 
This time, to see any sort of action to depict death was just heart-wrenching. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. God. You saw them playing trains, and you saw them, like, like you could tell when they were, like, curious, and, like, it wasn't quite a head tilt, but it's as close to a head tilt as you can get as a Dalek. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, like, look at them. Like, they really are something different. And, yeah, you're right. Then we just go and murder them. Yeah. Oh, we we don't yeah. Well, Who are you yes. talking about? We don't do it. <laughs> Speaking of the human Daleks, there's a very slight nuance that I was really impressed with, and that's when we get the fake Omega. Yeah, oh, yeah. And the Doctor notices that that's not my mark, mm-hmm. and in the animation, it was just very slightly different. And I thought that level of attention to detail was really impressive. Mm. Another thing that I noticed, too, and this goes throughout the story, is the CGI is done so incredibly well in this story. And more specifically, the interaction of the traditional animation with the CGI element, like the positronic brain that they're going to put in the three test Daleks. When one of them, Dr. or Maxwell, whoever picks one up, the way that, I mean, it's just seamless. And I know that's a silly thing, but I just kept looking at that and thinking... That's a 2D animated character holding a CGI element, and it it just works so well. And there are other elements that impressed me. A lot of the traps, I particularly noticed there was one that was like a ball with a spike on it that came down out of the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was obviously CGI, but it wasn't so glaringly different that it took you out of it. I think I mentioned when we did Web of Fear, the fully 3D Yeti felt really jarring to me against the 2D characters. Very much so. And that wasn't the case here. Mm -hmm. And I know we've touched on some of them already, but are there any other action scenes? Because this story has a lot of action scenes that perhaps worked a little better having them animated and being able to actually see them rather than read a description while you get some grunting on screen. Unfortunately, I don't really see it as much of the action. I think it's really the follow-up to the action sequence. So you have the action between Jamie and Kemmel, and we already discussed it. It's still kind of in that 60s era of very straight and everything, but it's afterwards... And Camel's like trying to like, come to terms with who Jamie is when he like goes to save him and everything. And that's what's really good and really well done. So you don't get quite as much facial expression, but you still were able to capture his expressions because he doesn't speak. And to be able to see him and even in animation, they can still have him be able to express himself was really, really well done. Julia, you make an excellent point there. And that is right on because. I was talking about the the Dalek death scenes, Kimball's death scene also. It's just really, really, it adds so much more to be able to see that and see the expression for a silent character than you would from what we experienced from the reconstruction. In the reconstruction, actually, I had to like really look it up to see if he actually died because it wasn't very clear Mm -hmm. of what was happening. And I was like, what just happened? Because since he's not screaming, it's like, So, and then Jamie's like, oh, it's so sad. I'm like, what's so sad? (laughs) This is probably a testament to how well it was directed. But when Maxible pushes him and, you know, well, Maxible shows up and then pushes him. Even though I've seen this before, I know what happens. I felt tension. Like, no, don't let this happen. Even I know it will. (laughs) Yeah. It's not just the action scenes. It's that you can actually see where things are happening in relative space. And it just makes every scene clearer. 
One scene I felt it really enhanced very shortly after Kemmel's death was the death of Waterfield. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I think the story, regardless of being able to see it or not, does a great job at building up this level of sympathy towards him and what he's going through. His daughter's been kidnapped. He's being forced to cooperate with these inhuman monsters so that Max Dibble can get the secret of alchemy because he's a complete whack job. <laughs> and Waterfield dives in front of the Dalek to save the Doctor. And that extermination effect from the Dalek Ray is really impressive. And mm -hmm. I just felt like his death was even more touching, seeing him actually dive in front. I think I would have felt more sympathy if at some point I hadn't noticed that he looks like he's... You remember the, the alternate ninth Doctor from Scream to Shulk? <laughs> got that in my notes too. He looks like that <laughs> if you ordered him from Wish.com. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have it in my notes that he looks a lot like the Shalka Doctor. <laughs> mm. There was a scene that I intended to pull up the reconstruction to compare because in episode five, uh, you get the, it's sort of a lengthy scene where the doctor is sort of having this conversation with Terrell where he's kind of like needling him to kind of like figure out what's going on with that guy. And there's all this background noise that keeps happening. And I keep thinking, what is going on in the original film that we're not seeing in the animation? Because it was just, I mean, they, I don't know what was going on, but it was so much noise, like scuffing noises and stuff. And I just, I, I never got around time to actually pull up that episode again in the other format. The guy who made the recording had a pet tortoise that just kept bumping <laughs> into, into the microphone. It is amazing <laughs> that you were able to discern that just from the sound. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of episode five, I loved being able to see a representation of the sword fight between Jamie and Terrell. Mm, yes. I would love to see that in full live action, but this was... I mean, obviously. ...a good effort at plugging the gap a little bit. I am so glad that they animated this. I'm so glad of the studio that animated this because if it had been <clears throat> the other group, the Big Finish group, <laughs> mm -hmm. sorry, I would not have been as happy. Yeah. That kind of leads me on to the next question. When we did the Web of Fear, I asked, would the animation replace the recon in your general viewing? If you were to decide, hmm, I really feel like watching this story. And I know that Don, Julie and myself said, absolutely not. We're going back to the recon. And Riley, you were a bit more ambivalent. So That's I'm going to ask yeah. that same question here. Would anyone go back to the recon with this? Or is the animation now your default way of watching? If I were to want to watch the whole thing beginning to end, I'm going to watch the animation. If I'm wanting to kind of go back and do a little bit more of a deep dive and you know maybe look at one episode in particular, I'd probably go back to the reconstruction just to kind of see where some of it originated. But from a, just a normal everyday viewing, yeah, animation. Same Z's. I would recommend a build-up system. You start with the reconstruction in episode <laughs> one, you watch the real episode in episode two, mm -hmm. then you watch the animation thereon. <laughs> I mean, that works. Yeah, I mean, the way I feel about it is that you get a taste of what you're, you know, uh, of kind of the look. Maybe you should also do a uh, reconstruction for episode three so you know the new setting better. So I haven't watched it yet because I don't have unlimited time, unfortunately, but I do know there is a new reconstruction on the Blu-ray for this, which mm. I'm sure is better than what we originally watched when we did the old loose cannon version. So I'm excited to see that. But again, I don't think it's quite the same as watching something with actual motion. Right. I will watch that out of curiosity, but I think if I was to decide, you know, I really want to watch Evil of the Daleks, I'm going to watch the animated version. Agreed. 
Don? I'm trying to think of a more convoluted way to watch it than what Riley came up with. <laughs> but aside from doing that while slowly having all of the oxygen pumped out of the room, I got nothing. <laughs> It's simple, Don. I will tell you, if you want to go even further, the 1992 Tom Baker narrated audio version of this is also on the Blu-ray. <laughs> so you could do some combination of every way possible. And you use a die. You roll a die before each one. <laughs> I mean, a, a yes. six-sided, a, a 20? What are we talking about here? Just divide it in half. One half animation, another <laughs> half reconstruction or real episode. I'm guessing we're talking Evil of the Daleks D&D style. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that, let's go ahead and re-rate this. I think we will start with Riley, then we'll go to Alan, myself, Don, and Julie. I know you hate going first, so we'll put you last today. Yeah. So, Riley, you have the pleasure of going first. I don't know if it's the animation or the fact that I really miss this period of the show that has made me appreciate this serial more this time than I did last time. Not to say I didn't like it last time, I did, but I appreciate it a lot more. But since we are focusing on the animation, I will say that I believe that the serial is strong enough to stand on its own without this. I think that's how good this story is. The animation definitely does help. The animation isn't rescuing some sort of serial that has been mistakenly seen as poorer than it actually is due to having missing episodes. Like I said, this is a good enough story that can stand alone on the reconstructions. But the animation does add a lot. We've talked about it. The action scenes, the castle traps, or excuse me, the spooky house traps, the multiple death scenes <laughs> that take place, and the explosive finale with the Emperor Dalek. So to be fair and try not to involve my nostalgia too much, I'm going to give this now seven and a half hashtag justice for Camels out of 10. <laughs> and of course, Riley gave this seven out of 10 last time round. So that's a 0.5 increase. If I was allowing my nostalgia, I would have gone straight up to eight. That's fair. All right, Alan, you're up next. Obviously, I don't have a prior score for you on this since you weren't on the show last time. So fire away. All right. I love this story so much. Uh, I think that episode one is so powerful because it has all these elements of past, present and future. It's in a modern day setting. You have the past with Waterfield and the Victorian era trinkets that he's collecting, plus a futuristic setting with the Dalek room where they materialize. And you, so it gives you this sense of you just have no idea where this story is going to go from there. And what it does is it takes you on this incredible journey from the modern setting back to Victorian times and up all the way to planet Scarrow. And, you know, that's not a thing that 60s Doctor Who did a lot of stories tended to be set, except for things like the war games, tended to be set where they're set and not have this much movement around. And I think that this story was so high on fans' wish list for either being found or being animated. And I think that they knew they had to get this right. And I think a lot of that is that final battle of the Daleks. No matter what had happened through the first six episodes, if they had got that final battle right, I think fans would have loved it and it would have been a successful release. But the thing is, they got everything that good on that level. There's a little bit to it. I, I really think that it could have been stronger if it's like six episodes instead of seven. When you think about what the story is, it's hard to think of what happens actually being stretched over seven episodes for me. So I'm, I'm going to give it eight and a half Dizzy Daleks. 
Ooh, good call. From my perspective, I gave this one 8 out of 10 last time. And I think I mentioned I've always had a soft spot for this. This was one of the first times as a child I encountered the missing episodes. I've mentioned that wonderful narrated release with Tom Baker that was a staple of car journeys when I was a kid. And I have a huge amount of nostalgia. That being said, I feel like the animation really does add something here. There are a lot of action scenes, whether it's the Jamie Kemmel fight, the Jamie Terrell fight, whether it's the final end with the Daleks, and actually having something fluid to watch rather than a narrated description or stills with a little description underneath explaining what was going on. I think it really brought it up a notch. I felt like, as Riley and Alan have already said, the animation here feels right. They did a great job with it. It fits in with the story. As I mentioned earlier, episode two is more or less shot for shot, which makes it feel like the animation of the remaining episodes fit in well with the existing episode. So I think they did get that just right. And there were some nice Easter eggs there. Alan mentioned the Weeping Angel candlesticks. I noticed in episode one, posters for contemporary bands, including Cream, The Move, and most notably The Who, whose logo they drew in the style of the Hartnell logo, which I thought was so cool. So this has definitely gone up in my estimation. So I'm going to give this nine swinging spiky balls <laughs> out of 10. <laughs> Don, you're up next. We would like to remind you, if you have spiky swinging balls, please see a doctor at the first level opportunity. Indeed. Don, you gave this eight out of 10 last time. I did. That is a fact. <laughs> I don't really know where to go from that, but yes, that's true. I kind of like going near the end because all the good stuff has already been said, so I don't have to blather too much. I enjoyed this story before. I like it even more now because you can really hone in on exactly what's going on. You've got a whole lot of changes in terms of location. You've got a spooky house. You are eventually wind up on Scarrow. There's just so much to this serial, and it's all really fun. I don't know what else to say that we haven't already said. So I'm going to give this nine Dudley Simpsons before he gave up on life and had his cat do his work for him out of 10. Oh and then last but not least, Miss Julie, I know you gave this seven out of 10 last time. Let's hear oh, how it's improved. It has improved drastically. I loved this this time around. Not just liked, loved it. The animation really helped. I've discussed it before. Animation typically helps me because sometimes with the reconstructions, it just seeing the same picture over and over again gets a little boring after a while. And just not being able to see what's going on, where the action is, what's happening can really hurt a lot. And yes, it does help that we go back to an era with Jamie and we all know my love for him. But again, this was the turning point for their relationship. And I think that's a big thing. And I didn't really quite realize that until going back and watching it again. So I am moving this up to 8.5 Jamie and Kemmel adventures out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, that actually gives us a nice story average, both inclusive of Alan and then just the watchers only of 8.5. The average has gone up an entire point on the first time we did this. So the general verdict, this was hugely successful. I am extremely glad that this time I can end the episode on a positive note rather than droning on and trailing off as I try and find something interesting to say about the nightmare that was the Web of Fear episode three. <laughs> <laughs> 
with that, <laughs> we will be back to our regular programming next episode as we talk about the demons. That will be out in a week. Keep an eye out for that. But for now, as always, thank you very much for listening. Alan, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show again. And to everyone listening, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, Alan Seiler, and myself, Anthony Williams. This bonus episode, Up the Kilt, was originally recorded on Wednesday the 20th of October 2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available through your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And you can also email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, this time round, we barely mentioned alchemy. It's a miracle!